I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The prayers of the Apostle Paul are an entire system of divinity. That is, they're a system of theology. If you study the prayers that he has recorded in the book of Ephesians, the book of 1 Corinthians, the hints he makes at prayer in the book of Romans, the prayers in Philippians, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians, they're so rich with theology and they are a perfect guide to spirituality. They're balanced. And one of the great themes that you're going to see the whole way through the prayers of Paul is something you'll see tonight as we study this prayer of the Apostle Paul. And as we study this prayer, I want you to constantly be evaluating your prayer with his prayer. And then wherever your prayer is below the standard, breathe out a request to the Father through the Son that he would make your prayers more like the pattern. There are a number of Paul's prayers in the epistles that can guide us. And they overflow with so many truths that it's like it's like a, a miner who finds a vein of gold and then decides, well, I'm not going to take all that gold because I'm used to only getting so much every day. I wouldn't want to get more than I'm used to. I feel like that's the way many of us are when we read these prayers. You've read the book of Ephesians before. Have you ever pondered what Paul prayed for? If I were to ask you right now, what is it that Paul prayed for? Can you name two, three, four, five of the things that he prayed for? He asks for a prayer a number of times. What does he pray for? Well, here is his prayer. And they are rich. So I want to encourage you, as we look at this, to learn how to pray from Paul. Now as we get into a book of Ephesians, there's a few things you need to know by the background. First of all, this is a prison epistle. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and does anyone know the fourth prison epistle? The fourth epistle that Paul wrote in prison. Philemon. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then jump to the end, Philemon, Philemon. Those four Paul wrote at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. The last two verses say that Paul was in prison. While he was in prison, he wrote these four letters. He had planted the churches a number of years before, and now looking back on those churches, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Ephesians is his least personal letter. There are no names in the letter. He doesn't say, hello, greet Archippus, nothing. Why? Some people have thought that maybe Philemon was an elder in the church at Ephesus. And perhaps Philemon, the letter to Philemon was so personal that Ephesians was less personal. Some have said that Ephesians was intended for a circuit. It would have gone from one church to the next, which is why there's nothing about the problems in the church in Ephesians. He doesn't say anything positive about the church. He just moves on. 
So, what is said in this wonderful letter? What is said in this prayer? I'd like us to look at the prayer tonight and ask for the Lord's help to understand how he prays and then to be changed by it. We'll read this evening verse number 15 to verse number 19. But while I read verses 15 to 19, I've got to tell you before I start that that's that's not quite fair to Paul. Because verses 15 to 23 is all one sentence. Mark that in your Bible. 15 to 23, one sentence. Well, go back to the beginning of the chapter. Verses 3 to 14 is one sentence. He's got a whole chapter that's two sentences long, except for the greeting. He's got 21 verses that are two sentences. So let's read verses 15 to 19, half of his sentence about prayer. Verse 15, wherefore I also, there's the subject of the big sentence, I. Paul is doing something. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, do not cease. Does your Bible say do not stop? That's the verb. I stop. There's the subject and verb. I cease. I don't cease. What doesn't he cease? The rest of this is explanation of I don't stop. Even there's a lesson for us, isn't that? The first thing you learn about Paul's prayer, it was consistent. How does our prayer line up with his on this opening point? With the subject and verb of the sentence. I don't stop. What about us? Let's read it. I do not stop. Verse 16. To give thanks for you. Making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17. That. There it is. What does he pray for? I pray that. Here's his request. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of glory. May give unto you. Here it is. He's asking that God would give us something. What is it? If you've got a pen, you can underline right here. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's Christ. The eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your heart being enlightened so that, now here are the results. There's going to be three results. So that you may know the hope of his calling. And then another result. So that you may know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And the third thing that he wants you to know. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Paul prays. One request and three results. If you're taking notes or if you're marking in your Bible, you can put request, result. You don't have to ever forget these again. It's alliterated. Request, 
There it is in verse 17. Repeated in verse 18. Results. Verse 18 and 19. Three results, one request. Let's look at this request now and then look at the three results. What is the request? In verse 17, I've already told you, what does he ask for? A spirit. And look down in verse 18. What does he ask for in verse 18? To have a new spirit and to have your eyes enlightened is the same thing. How do I know? Because look at what describes the spirit in verse 17. Look down in verse 17. How is the spirit? What kind of a spirit? Three descriptions. It's a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge. Three intellectual capacities. Three intellectual aspects. The Christian faith is intellectual. It's rational. It has no contradictions. It's logical. I once heard, maybe I told you this before. If I'm repeating myself, you're just getting old. I once heard a pastor say, well, Christianity is biblical, but it's not logical. Oh, oh, save us. Are you saying that God is illogical? That's the same as saying he's irrational. And that's a terrible thing to say about the mind whose thoughts are above our thoughts and whose ways are beyond our ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Well, let me just tell you, no, that's blasphemy. No, it is logical. It's rational. God wants our minds to be sharp. He's he's dealing with wisdom. That's an intellectual issue. Revelation, that's something we receive through our minds. The knowledge of Christ, that's something that happens in our minds. And then look at the next one in verse 18. The eyes of your understanding, of the eyes of your heart being enlightened. The eyes of your heart? There's a metaphor. Your heart is supposed to be seeing something. What does it see? It's going to, if your eyes are opened, you'll know something. You see in verse 18? So that you may know. Now that connects us with verse 17. Knowledge, knowing. Eyes of your heart. Enlightenment. That's wisdom and revelation. See, there's parallels between 17 and 18. It's one request. He wants a dramatic change in your mind. He does not want us to shut off our minds. He does not want us to close our minds and open our heart. He does not want us to let go and let God He wants us to think. He wants us to labor at clear, careful, rational, non-contradictory, well-substantiated thought. He is honored when we read, when we study, when we learn languages, when we master studies. It is a sad tragedy that many people who call themselves Christians do not read a single book in a year. 
It's a tragedy that they don't memorize their Bibles. The Christian faith is a rational, intellectual journey. And when Paul prays, he asks for requests that have to do with our minds. Are we praying this way? Because of sin, our logic is often confused, contradictory, misproportioned. We have thoughts that aren't quite clear. So even in the same conversation, we might use a word in two different ways and not even realize it. We need to pray this prayer. We'll misproportion things. We'll hear about a problem or we'll hear that someone did a thing and maybe it's this important and we'll pretend that it's that important. We'll read a verse in scripture that's this important and we'll put it down to that important. We tend to do that all the time and especially when our own interests are at stake. My wife says something and it seems, it seems to undermine my incredible glory. What do I say? Oh, hey, hey. I'm misproportionate. Far better to be humble, to have the eyes of my heart opened, to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. Well, this has to be divinely given. Notice that. In verse 17, where does this spirit, these new eyes, where do they come from in verse 17? They're given to you. You don't have them. I write in my Bible, DG, in the margin. Anytime I find the doctrines of grace. Doctrines of grace simply mean God does it all. He gets all the glory. When you find that in your Bibles, you might want to go on that journey with me too. Just put DG on the side. You'll find it all through, even in the Old Testament. You'll find it in the book of Kings and Chronicles when it says God gave him a new spirit. Where did he get the spirit from? Well, he just had it inside him and it was just sleeping until finally he, he just pulled it out of himself. I received a text on this pastor's group I'm on two days ago, three days ago. Someone said, this is almost word for word, they said, Champions are made from something deep within themselves, a dream, a desire, a vision. That would be news to the Apostle Paul because he thought it's got to be given to us. I've got to receive it. The problem is inside of me and the solution is outside of me. I need some great, great help. And I don't need you because you, you don't have much more, many more resources. Your reservoir is a cup. I need an ocean. And so it's got to be given to us. When it says spirit, it means a governing principle. It means a mind. Now I want us to notice each of these words briefly. Wisdom. Wisdom is the glasses by which you view the world. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, there's a wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.21 there's wisdom of the world, and it's the, the glasses that the world sees everything through. And then there's the wisdom of God. James tells us to pray for wisdom. James 1 verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask from God. Paul here tells us to pray for wisdom. It does not mean that you can make good decisions. 
It means to think about life the way God thinks about life. And yes, in general, if you think about life the way God thinks about life, you'll make good decisions. But he's not saying, I just, I pray for wisdom so that I'll pass my test. He's saying you pray for wisdom so you'll begin to see life and the world the way God sees it. And yes, then one by one, our decisions will start to turn the right way. Revelation. Paul again is reminding us that it comes from outside of us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you glory as if you hadn't received it? Some Puritan, I can't remember who, said, boasting over what you've learned in the Bible or where you're at spiritually is like boasting over the color of your eyes. You have nothing to do with it. If they're nice, wonderful. If they're ugly, heaven's coming. But either way, it's nothing that we can boast of. And then look at the third point. What's the third one in verse 17? Wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. All true knowledge begins with theology. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of? We want to say wisdom. That's a different verse. It's knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Which is why you cannot actually begin biblically an education without theology. If you begin your education with some fact other than there is a God and his son's name is Jesus, you started on the wrong foundation. That's the foundation of all knowledge and to fear him. And then he prays for open eyes in verse 18. He rephrases and repeats himself. I love doing that. That helps me when others do it to me. If there's a difficult concept, please tell me the same thing, but just use different words. Mortimer Adler, in his wonderful book, How to Read a Book, gives you three tests to know if you've read something. Have you ever read Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book? It's an excellent book. You can borrow it from me. I got mine for a dollar. Here's his three tests. Have you read? Here's how you can test. Number one, can you put it in your own words? Different words from the author. Can you rephrase it in all words that came from you, not from him? Number two, can you translate it into another language? Number three, can you give a real life example? If you can't do one or all of those three things about some some section in a book or some chapter or some book, you haven't read it yet. And here, he's giving an example. Paul's repeating himself. Look, I know what I'm talking about in verse 17. When I talk about a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge, let me rephrase it. I'm going to put it in different words so that you know I've mastered this subject and I've clearly understood the ins and the outs of this new spirit, this divine wisdom. It's a kind of opening of the eyes in your heart. And that's a wonderful metaphor. It means to see spiritual things. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, one of the only superlapsarians on the Westminster Assembly. Thomas Goodwin defined saving faith by saying this. Faith is when the soul sees the supreme excellency that is in Jesus Christ 
and then sets a value on him that is beyond all earthly things. But what's the first part of Thomas Goodwin's definition of faith? When the soul does what to Jesus? Sees him. Think about how common that is through the Bible. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's constantly in Scripture, this idea of seeing. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This idea of seeing is used by Paul because vision is our most dominant sense. Which would you rather lose? The sense of taste or your sight? Which would you rather lose? Sense of touch or your sight? Your smell? Okay, the only one that can compete with sight might be ears. But I think we'd all take sight over hearing. And Paul says here, you need to see something with your heart. Your eyes need to be opened. And that's the question that confronts us. Have our eyes been opened? Psalm 66 verse 16 says, um, let my soul tell what God has done. I will tell what God has done for my soul. Has God done something for your soul? Has he given you eyes, new eyes? Paul says, pray this way. Pray for a new spirit, new eyes. Do you have these eyes? Have you ever prayed for new eyes? Have you ever asked God, please give me eyes? I see some things, but I'm like that man that was healed, the blind man who was healed. Do you remember that that man in the Gospels? The first time Jesus touched him, he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. Jesus touched him a second time, and he had 20-20 vision. Have you ever asked God for that? Do you feel like your spiritual sight is more like Dimly gazing, looking through a cloud. When you read the Bible, do you feel that it's cloudy? When you pray, does your mind and heart just feel so distracted? Can you remember the last time when you prayed that you felt as if you were walking down a long hall filled with tall pillars of stone and at the end a glorious light on a throne and you knew with some sense greater than sight that that is God, your creator and maker and redeemer. Have you ever prayed and been taken up with visions of the glory and wonder of God? If you say no, then pray this prayer. If you say yes, but rarely, then pray this prayer. Go to Paul for advice on true spirituality. Some prayer requests are really more like therapy. We talk about a problem, but we would not know if the prayer was answered. Have you ever heard that? People pray and they repeat the same kinds of words over. Almost as if it, it, it's a kind of cathartic. It's comforting. It, it's, it makes me feel good to say these, like putting on an old pair of shoes. 
I'm always used to saying these things. Amen. Paul doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want us to go to prayer as a kind of therapy, as a kind of, well, I'm just not feeling right, so let me just get back and say some things I'm used to saying with a bunch of other people who are used to saying the things they're used to saying. He wants you to genuinely ask for what you need, and he wants to see that he wants you to see your great need. This experience, isn't it beyond you? Beyond all of us. If you've had it once, if you had it twice, if you've had it ten times, don't you want it every day? Go to God and say, God, open my eyes and give me this spirit. Paul goes further than the mere request. He doesn't merely tell us what to pray for, but he could. He could stop right there. He could put a full stop, but that's not his way. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have short sentences. He has a lot to tell us in a short amount of time. And it's for our good that he kept moving his pen. He tells us three ways that we can tell if we were praying correctly. Three ways that we can tell if God's answered us. So here are the three results. How will you know if God has given you what you've asked for? Point number two, the results. Point number one, the request. Now let's go to the results. In verse 18, you're going to know three things. What? 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 Number one, the hope of his calling. Calling is a word that means to be born again. It means to be given new desires. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Know this, brothers, that not many mighty are called. Not many rich, not many powerful men are called. But God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise. And he calls the poor and lowly. Galatians 1.15, Paul says, When it pleased God who called me. How was Paul saved? God called him. Romans 8.28-30, the golden chain. says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. And those he predestinated, then he also called. And the ones he called, then he also justified. The ones he justified, he also glorified. Foreknown, predestined, called. Before the world was formed, he knew his people. He predestined them. And then in time, right here in 2019, he's going throughout the world with his spirit, sending his servants, sending you, sending you, sending you, sending me to talk to people. And he's calling people through your voice. Isn't that amazing? That he'll actually call people that he had chosen from eternity past. He'll call them through your efforts. And then when they're called, they'll believe. And when they believe, they're justified. And then someday when he comes back, glorified, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That's the hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? It is that we would be glorified. That we would be like Christ. The hope of his calling is that we would be transformed. Do you ever know that? Do you ever in your mind think that someday 
All of your sin will be rooted out of your life and out of your heart. Do you ever think about that? Do you ponder that? That is the great hope. That God would make you like his son. There will be no more selfish motives. No more quick temper. No more lazy responses. There will be no more lustful thoughts. No more perverse ideas. No more twisted thinking. When Christ makes us like he is. Oh, the heaven of heaven to a Christian is to have his sin removed from him. That is the hope of his calling. And you'll know that he's given you the new spirit. You'll know that he's answered your prayers and given you these eyes. You'll know that you've seen God when you have this deep hope to be made like Christ. Do you have that hope? Is it in you? Is it bubbling over? Pray, pray, pray. He'll hear you. It's in the Bible because he's not slow to answer this request. You might pray other requests and not get them. This one you'll pray and you'll get because it's in his will. You can pray this one and say, Father, in Jesus' name, and you know you'll get it. This is a freebie. Sometimes you have to pray and say, if it be thy will. You don't have to pray if it be thy will on this one. It is his will. Second proof, second evidence, second test, second result. What is it there in verse 18? How will you know if you've been given the spirit, this revelation, these new eyes? You will know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of the glory of his inheritance. You're in Ephesians. Look at chapter 1 verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an what? Inheritance. Does your Bible say inheritance in verse 11? Inheritance. Look at verse 14. Which is the down payment of our inheritance. Look at verse 18. Inheritance in the saints. Three times in this opening section he says inheritance. The first two times are in the first sentence. Verses 3 to 14. Remember it's one big sentence. The inheritance that he promises is our future home in heaven. Listen to this from Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem that is from above is free. She is our mother. What does that mean? It means it's going to be wonderful to go to heaven. The, The inheritance of the saints is their future home in heaven. It's the joy and hope 
an anticipation they have that when they die, they will be with Christ. To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord is better. Paul had, in one sense, a death wish. A Christian death wish. For I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to stay in the flesh is more necessary for you. All right. Paul wrote that, those words in prison. He's sitting in prison. They can take him and kill him. And he says, I really wish they would. I don't feel nervous at all when a new soldier walks in with a big sword. <laughs> he was eager to go to his inheritance. He said, if, if, they don't die, if I don't die and I go to see it, then I'll have my blessed hope, which is the Lord Jesus coming back. Either way, I get my inheritance. Do you find yourself thinking about heaven? Do you think much about heaven? Our Lord is going to prepare a place for you. But what did he say right before that in John 14? Brothers, do not let your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. Is your heart troubled? Think about heaven. You can tell a false teacher because when your heart is troubled, he wants you to think about this life. You can tell a true teacher because he says, I'm so sorry about the problems in Zim. Keep hoping for heaven. I can't promise you they're going to get better. Maybe they will. Let's pray. Maybe they will. Let's work. Maybe they will. Maybe your children will change it. Let's work. But I have not been told in the Bible that it's going to get better. In fact, I have a lot of statements that it's going to get worse. But I know this. If you're asking for new eyes, if you're asking for a new spirit, you're going to start seeing things like heaven. And you're going to know the riches of the glory of that place. That's the saint's home. We're not home yet. Why would you think you're going to rest now? You're still on the road. Keep walking. Thirdly, what do you know? What's the final thing that you know in verse 19? What is it in verse 19? Someone tell me. Not just his power, but the exceeding greatness of his power. How can you shout in a letter? Paul does it. You repeat the same idea with different words that mean the same things. You choose superlatives like saying greatest, best, most. Paul chooses three words here and his words are jumping off the page and grabbing the Ephesians and shaking them and saying, if you're asking God for a spirit, you'll know you've got this spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Christ. You'll know that the eyes of your heart were opened if you know three things. And the third one is the power. I think that's how maybe he would have said it if he wasn't writing. 
the exceeding greatness, the overwhelming power that works toward us who believe. What power? He's going to tell you. It's the power that works in us who believe. And then he goes on and says, according to the working of his mighty power, he uses three different Greek words that all mean strength and work and power. Working, mighty, power. He's opening up the dictionary. He's going through every word. What can I use? I've got to set this before them. He's going to grab, you watch when we get down to verse 20 just now. In verse 19, he's saying, there's so much power. Let me grab all the terms and pour them out on you. You've got to get your minds focused on God and his power, not you. It's not you. There's too much of you. That's the problem. You need eyes that don't see you. You need eyes that see right past yourself, right to God. And there's this power. What kind of power? Give us examples, Paul. He's going to do that. Look at verse 20. It's the power that worked in Christ when he, the Father, raised him, the Son, from the dead and then put him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. I wonder if those newly converted soldiers chained to Paul were shouting amen as he's writing this down. You know they were converted, right? Because in Philippians it says, I've led many of my guards to Christ. And maybe he wrote Philippians before Ephesians. And he's writing this down. He's led these guards to Christ. He's there for two years. And they're looking over. Tell me more about this. Oh, I told you yesterday. I told you yesterday. Today, I've got to get this letter written. Look at those examples. Verse 20. The power that he used to raise up Christ from the dead. What power is that? That's generating power. It's a power that creates life. Can you create life? Keep trying, scientists. I laugh in your general direction. You'll never get it done. Yesterday, Dakato and I talked about cloning. And I said, I don't think they'll ever be able to clone. Oh, yes, they'll be able to clone a cell. But they'll never be able to clone a human because... You can't create the principle of life. You can, you can create certain things. Science is amazing and done some wonderful things and I enjoy its benefits constantly. I thank God that all of those are simply reflections of the mind of God. But they'll never be able to create life. Why? For many reasons, but one of the reasons is where, where will they get the soul from? Can you have a human without a soul? Another reason is that generating power is a mark of divinity. And God cannot and will not hand out his divine prerogatives. The ability to create life is a mark of divinity. God does it. He, he brings Christ back from the dead. 
He, the Father, set him at the right hand. Now that's a different kind of power. That's authority. He not only has power over the physical world when he raises Christ from the dead, but he has authority because no one gets to sit at his right hand unless given that position by the highest and greatest authority. Do you remember James and John? They asked, can we sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom? And Jesus says, that power is in the Father's hand alone, meaning the one who has all the authority gets to do that. He wants us to think about the power that rests in the Father as his great authority over all things, setting him in the heavenly places. And then notice how exalted he is in verse number 21. He's far above, and then a number of words are used that refer to angelic spirits governing ministering spirits and powers far beyond all earthly kings and far beyond all the sons of God who are called before the throne of Jehovah to give an account for themselves along with Satan in Job chapter 1. Far beyond the spirits as we find in Daniel chapter 9. Who are these spirits that are holding back the angels from delivering the message to Daniel? God has authority and power to set Christ beyond all of them. And then he's taken all things in verse 22. And he's put all things under Christ's feet. Everything is under Christ's feet. And then he went further and gave Christ to be the head of Over the church. His own body. Christ. Is the power. Over the church. He is the power. Over demons, devils and angels. He is the power. Over every name that is named. He is the power. Over all earthly laws. And when you start to think. About that kind of power. When you start to marvel at what the Father does with that power. It's a mark that you've been given new eyes and a new spirit. How do we close this message? It's very simple. All of these things are spiritual. There's nothing initially practical about this prayer. But a man who prays this prayer and has it answered (coughs) will be the most practical man in the world. The phrase, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good, is unbiblical. If you have the mind of Christ, if you have a heart for heaven, if your eyes see these things, you will be actively obeying, serving, alleviating the pain and sickness and hurt all around us, reaching sinners for Christ, reading your Bibles, repenting of sin, apologizing when you're cross with your children. This kind of heart and spirit cannot but serve because you'll remember 
It's the knowledge of Christ. And Christ did not come to serve, but to be served. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray this way.